As soon as Rachel had borne Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away, that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you, and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later, when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest, pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's, and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Garrett. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we live in a world of injustice, and it's not just a problem of our time or our place or our age, but it, it is a problem of this world. It is a problem in us, and it is a hard thing to, to live within. It's a hard thing to see. It's, it's a grievous and wrong and sad thing, and yet it is in large part due to our own personal sins and also just the sin of this world. Um, and so, God, would you give us the strength to see you and your hand in this? Would you, would you fix our eyes on Jesus who suffered injustice, who took the sting of injustice for us? Um, so that we have not just a solution for injustice, but we have a help, we have a guide for how we live in a world that, that is streaked with injustice uh, at all times. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Uh, so if you have been um, tracking with us uh, either here or uh, online uh, over the past three months, we've been going through uh, the story of Jacob and uh, his life, and specifically the focus has been on how God redeems and uses flawed people. Jacob is a great example of that, uh, as are we, if, if we look in the mirror. Uh, and so, this story, though, with, within um, Jacob's progress, uh, th- there's some good signs, actually, for Jacob, at least. There's some kind of glimmers of hope that uh, we see that God has been working in Jacob's life. God has been bringing change, he's been bringing growth into Jacob, and we start to see some maybe a little bit more likable things uh, about Jacob as, as this story unfolds. But the key thing again in this is not Jacob, but it's God's faithfulness. That throughout whatever Jacob is going through, that God has this unrelenting commitment to bless and prosper and love Jacob without ever wavering, without ever pulling back from that. Now, um, I I know at least a few of you here uh, play board games. Uh, Actually, Fernando, who's not here, please keep him in your prayers. They're going to be in Angola for another um, couple weeks doing ministry there. But he told me that he and his family play board games almost every night. Uh, which was just kind of astonishing. But I, I really think, and this is not in my notes, which may be a little dangerous, but I, th- there's been kind of like in the last 10 years, maybe like a, a resurgence or a renaissance, it feels, of board game play. It, it probably something related to like the screens and, and the pushback on that. But for whatever reason, or I know there's a healthy contingent of people who love board games. Um, and what I have in my mind, though, specifically, is if you've ever... Um, if you've played one of the, the board games that is specifically one of these strategy board games that you win through progressively annihilating your opponents, right? Like Monopoly or Risk, right? One of these things where you are just step-by-step step trying to crush everybody else. Um, and if you've ever played one of these kinds of games, you are aware that there is within the gameplay, outside of anything in the the written rules, uh, a, shall we say, political dynamic uh, that very much affects who is going to win the game. And what I mean by that is there is a lot that depends on how, how you play one of those games. And by that I mean how you treat the other players. Because uh, here's what can often happen right, with, with that kind of game. Let's say that uh, Isaac, right, who, who's just up here, and myself, that we are playing a game with uh, a number of other people. And Isaac, you know, just because of his superior skills and strategy, right, he, he's just crushing. Right? He's just kind of cleaning house here. Uh, and he takes it as his next strategy to really go after me. Right? He's just, he's just going gonna to take me down. Because right, that's just kind of the cutthroat guy that Isaac is. Um, so, uh, but but ha- here's what happens. How I respond to that will make a big difference. Because if I take those losses with grace, it, it is very likely the other players will become incensed at what's going on, and they will come to my defense. 
Um, however, right, if I'm very much kind of sour grapes about this and like moaning and complaining, griping, the other players might just decide to look the other way, right? It's just, you know, okay, we'll just, we're just going to let this go. Now, this is a very imperfect example, but th- this is very much connected actually to what we find in this passage. And it's connected as well to a much broader, much more important principle, which is how do we respond to injustice? What do you do when you are being treated unfairly? And the main point here from this is that in the midst of injustice, in the midst of that, lean into God's grace. In the midst of injustice, lean into God's grace. And as we look at this passage, we're going to, we're going to examine this scene between, it's more like a battle, right, between Jacob and Laban. And we're going to look a little bit more at these two characters. Uh, and then we're going to move and we're going to look at the, the principle of injustice as a whole right, and how that relates to Jacob and, and to us, but then where Jesus meets us in injustice. And, and then we'll finish by looking at how God works his power through weakness, which, which we also see here. So first of all, I want to look at these two men, Jacob and Laban, who we see throughout this interaction, they're kind of sizing each other up. Right? They're both um, trying to calculate how to play their hand here. And as we have seen now, by this time in this story, and we saw this in Laban's victory over Jacob, Right, where he gets him to work 14 years instead of seven for Rachel, and he gets him to marry both of his daughters, not just Rachel, that in Laban, Jacob has more than met his match. Laban is, um, he is a master deceiver. He is a master manipulator. Right, so Laban is an imposing figure. And it is obvious as well about Laban, and this dates all the way back before we picked up our story to when uh, Isaac's mother, Rebecca, is being, is being married off to, um, did I get this right? Sorry, Jacob's mother, Rebecca, is being married off to Isaac, right? Rebecca is Laban's sister, right? And, and what happens in, in this interchange where we first meet Laban is what catches Laban's interest is, is Abraham sends his servant to go and, and sort of win her hand, to win the affection, win the approval of Rebecca and her family. And what really gets Laban's attention is all the gifts, all the stuff that starts coming his way, right? And, and so we, we pick up on this fact Laban is highly materialistic, The thing that has Laban's heart, the thing that has his attention, is his money, his wealth, his prosperity, his material welfare. That is what Laban cares about. You you, you see it there. You see it in the way that he barters and sells off his daughters. You see it happening in this passage. It's going to show up later. Okay, Laban is very much a, a man that's after money. And Jacob here, on his part though, he is not merely some naive simpleton who is going to serve as Laban's pawn. You've got to remember by the time we get to this passage, Jacob is in his mid-50s. All right? And he has been working for Laban for 14 years. And he's married to both of his daughters. 
So Jacob knows how Laban's mind works. He knows who he is dealing with. He knows how this guy ticks. And so Jacob is going to know what he's doing as he approaches this. And more than that, Jacob is uniquely gifted, gifted for this particular struggle. And I think this is an appropriate time to perhaps bring in some more nuance, some more balance to who Jacob is. And hopefully as we do that, reflect on um, how God uses us and our strengths and weaknesses and how God grows us and how we can be growing into the kinds of people God wants us to be. And what I mean in that is that I'm sure a number of you have heard this already, but isn't it interesting that your greatest strengths are also your greatest weaknesses, right? Isn't that a very interesting reality that your greatest strengths are also your greatest weaknesses? Because your strengths are going to be your blind spots, right? They're going to be the things that you just kind of take for granted and you don't uh, you don't think about the impacts that these are making, and you are more likely to overexert or overlean on those strengths. And we've been dumping a lot on Jacob throughout the course of this series, and there's good reason for that, because um, he makes a lot of mistakes, and he does a lot of selfish and manipulative things. And one of the reasons why the Bible shows us that so clearly because the Bible wants us to understand that God's blessing is dependent on God, not Jacob, not us. It is dependent on God's free grace given through Jesus. So we see plenty of Jacob's shortcomings. However, it's also true, if you look at Jacob's story, that most of the time, his moral failures, his sins... His errors in judgment, most of the time, these come from an over-reliance on his gifts. And this is the way it is for all of us. And Jacob has some very real gifts. He is very shrewd. He's very wise and sophisticated and savvy. He is someone who knows the art of the deal, okay? Uh, He knows, he's the kind of guy that... You put him in, in any kind of circumstance, any kind of difficulty, any sort of challenge. Jacob is the kind of guy, he's going to find a way to make it work. He's going to find a way to come out on top. Right? That, that's just the kind of guy that he is. If you ever seen, how many of you have seen uh, Tom and Jerry cartoon? Yeah, yeah. So, so he's like Jerry, right? He's like this little mouse, right? That, there's just like this clever mouse that always finds a way to flip the tables and, and come out with the upper hand. That's Jacob. And so when it comes a time here to bargain with Laban about his wages, Jacob goes into this deal with his eyes open. And that's why we find where, where Laban makes this comment about you know, how, how he wants to keep Jacob around and, and wants to take care of him because he's learned by divination that, that God's blessed him because of Jacob. This is kind of like an eye roll. Or it's, it's almost laughable. For Jacob, uh, which is why he responds the way that he does. He kind of gives this sort of uh, business accounting lesson to Laban of uh, here's a, an accounting of your assets, as in, you know, what Jacob's saying is look, Laban, uh, 
Nobody needs to consult a magic eight ball or a fortune teller to tell them that I'm the reason why you prospered. Right? I, I know, I know exactly how much you had 14 years ago, and I know how much you have now. All right, so Jacob knows his own worth to Laban. And he has been working, he has been living in this sort of situation where Laban is getting wealthier and wealthier off of Jacob's effort, while Jacob is being treated relatively poorly. And Jacob also knows, like we said, he knows the kind of guy that Laban is. He knows that he is greedy, and he knows that he is not to be trusted. And that's why Jacob makes this offer that he does, which I think we can assume both he and Laban have been thinking about this offer for a long time, kind of building up to this uh, contract renewal. Right? And, and so um, Jacob asks specifically for payment. He asks to take basically the runs. He asks for the outcasts and the misfits and those that would have been seen as less than ideal. And we can also see, as we read Jacob's proposal here, that he is at great pain. He takes great pain to make the terms of this agreement very, very clear. He doesn't want any uncertainty. He doesn't want Laban coming back to him in a few months and saying, well, well, Jacob, you know, actually, this is how much I promised you, which, by the way, still happens. Uh, and, and this is an appropriate time like, to turn to the subject of injustice, which is what happens. Right? Because despite Jacob's efforts here all right, to, to cover his bases, and he even he insists with Laban that this arrangement take place right away, that day before Laban has a chance to alter the deal. Despite all of this, Laban still finds a way. He beats him to the punch. He cheats him. And he takes out every single speckled, spotted, black lamb and goat. He gives them to his sons, and then he sets this separation between Jacob and his sons. And what follows, I mean, we can question whether Jacob is, is acting in the most upright way with, with what he does to kind of um, manipulate this flock to get the best for himself. But what can be said for Jacob is that he doesn't lie. He doesn't straight out cheat Laban like Laban does to him. All right, so once again, Jacob finds himself on the losing end of deception. He finds himself as a victim of injustice. And what's key here is how does Jacob respond? Because it's not perfect, but his response is going to point us to Jesus. And the question for you as well, and for me, is how do we respond? How do we respond in situations of injustice? You're treated unfairly, and you're left basically powerless to rectify that. There's a general principle that we can learn here from Jacob, and that is, He does what he can, and he leaves the rest to God. He does what he can, and he leaves the rest to God. Here's what Jacob doesn't do. He doesn't go chasing after Laban. And they say, wait, wait, wait. He doesn't go and make some raid by night on Laban's sons and steal back what were rightfully his sheep. 
He doesn't take it on himself to take some of Laban's flock under his care and kill some of them because, hey, that's only fair, right? Now now we're going to even the score. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't take to social media to rant and rave about what a monster Laban is and can you believe how abusive this relationship is? He doesn't do that. He, He does what he can and he leaves the rest to God. And I say that he leaves the rest to God because by the time we come to the next chapter, which they're going to have this confrontation, Jacob realizes he knows why he has prospered. He knows that it is God who's taken care of him, who's looked out for him, who's sheltered him, who's protected him during all of these abuses and injustices that he suffered. He knows that it's been God. This is a picture of Jesus. So listen to, to 1 Peter 2. You can go there if, you, if you'd like, but you can also just listen. 1 Peter chapter 2, 22 to 23. 1 Peter 2, 22 to 23. It says, He committed no sin, this is Jesus, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jacob is not without fault in the course of his relationship with Laban. But Jesus was. Jesus spoke perfectly, and he behaved perfectly. And yet he suffered tremendous injustice. Because he took the penalty that we deserve. He he took that injustice for our salvation. But not only that, but in doing so, he provided a category. He provided us a, a way to understand how do we engage, how do we live in situations, circumstances of injustice. Because Jesus, who is God himself, he never responds by entering into this kind of give and take, right? This sort of exchanging and balancing of accounts, this equal and opposite reaction. He never does that. Instead, as he suffers, he responds with grace and love and forgiveness. And he commits himself to God. And because of that, Jesus is vindicated by God. He is given the name that is above every name. And Jacob is vindicated by God in what he does. Jacob is blessed and prospered by God tremendously. And Laban, although Laban temporarily looks like he is winning, that's not how it's going to turn out. Right? Because Laban down the line, he is ultimately really sacrificing everything he has, all of his relationships, on the altar of personal gain. And Laban is going to be exposed for who he is, he's going to be rejected, and he's going to be abandoned. Laban is going to come out losing. And Jacob, in this injustice, he is going to be blessed. And this brings us to the last point which is God's power through weakness. 
And by weakness, what, what I have specifically in mind is Jacob's plan to recoup his losses. He does this whole elaborate thing where he has these sticks and and, uh, of these various trees. He peels white streaks in them and he puts them by the feeding troughs, tries to get them to breed there so that now they're going to have speckled and spotted sheep. This is weakness. Uh, To to say that, for me to say I am not an expert uh, in cattle breeding, or livestock, you can tell how well I'm saying this, livestock handling, that would be a bit of an understatement. However, even I know there is a reason you will not find Jacob's plan in any textbooks on genetics or breeding. It's just, it's not going to show up there. And to be clear here, in Jacob's mind, this is an excellent plan. And to not take too much away from Jacob, uh, we, we can be sure that with decades of experience right, as a shepherd, with constant care over this flock, surely he is able to engineer some sort of selective breeding that's going to advantage himself. Right? And that, that's Jacob using his ingenuity, his cleverness, his gifts from God. However, the exponential level of Jacob's success and prosperity, we can be sure is due to God. And Jacob himself reaches this conclusion by the end of his time with Laban. He realizes that whatever his plans were, whatever his actions were in this season, it, it is God. God is the reason that he is blessed, he's watched over, and he is sustained during all of this injustice. Uh, two practical takeaways that I, I want to offer for us Uh, When we are in times, which is part of all of our lives, when we are times that we're dealing with and and under experiences of injustice. And and the first one is, I mentioned it already, I'll say it again, and that is we are called to do what we can and leave the rest to God. Now both of those, make sure you heard both of those. They're both important, and I think a lot of times what happens is that when we are in these kinds of situations, we're experiencing injustice, we can have feelings of frustration that stem from not keeping both of those callings in mind. Because you can either respond in that kind of situation by saying, it's useless, right? What can I do? You can't fight the man, whatever. I'm just going to give up. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to lay down and, and die. Right? That's not right. right. But on the other side, you can respond to, by saying, I will make this right. I, I won't stand for this. I will fix this. People have to know. I, I've got to right this wrong. And that's also the wrong response. Right? We've got to know that all the time, on the one hand, there is meaningful work. There are meaningful roles and tasks, no matter where you are, that God has in front of you for you to do. That's always part of your calling. And God wants us to use the best of your strength, of your intellect, of your gifts, right, to serve Him in whatever situation you find yourself in. You're never just to put those on the shelf. But on the other hand, we have got to know that there are a lot of things in this world that we cannot mend, right? that you cannot fix. 
Right? This is Ecclesiastes. What God has made crooked, who can make straight? Right? And that's not saying that you should stop caring. Stop caring about uh, injustice or stop, stop advocating against injustice. But what that means is that you have to let the weight of those things, right, the weight of the responsibility of justice, fall on God and not on you. Because if you don't do that, if you are the one carrying that weight, I promise you, it, it is going to crush you and you are going to be angry all the time. So that's the first takeaway, right? Do what you can and leave the rest to God. Second takeaway, remember that God works his power through weakness. Right? He loves to do this. God loves to do this. And there are a lot of times that we are going to think that what we have come up with is some brilliant, ingenious, inventive, creative strategy when in reality, it's peeling some white streaks into some sticks. But that's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's not okay in the sense of it's okay to be stupid. But it's, it's okay because you're, you're trusting God. Or you, you've got to know that God actually blesses Jacob in the midst of, through this weak plan. And he is going to bless, he is going to take care of those who are his in Jesus. And a lot of times God actually loves to use weakness and bad plans and backwardness in order so that when people look back at that in the, in the afterward, they're like, okay, clearly that was God. Right? And God gets the glory out of it. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. It says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that, this is key, so that no human being might boast before the Lord. That's why. You think about Jesus' band of disciples. Jesus took the black sheep, the speckled, the spotted, the outcasts, and from this group, from these men made the worldwide church. The only institution that he's promised will never fail. So God loves, he delights in bringing power, bringing his grace through plans, through actions that seem weak, that seem improbable. So if you are in a position where it feels like you are, you're running up against futility, Take heart, because God is working on your side, if you are a Christian. And this is where I want to close, because the primary message for us from this passage, remember, is that in times of injustice, lean into God's grace. 
I want to just close with drilling down a little bit more specifically, a little bit more practically. What does that mean? What does that look like? To lean into God's grace. And I want to first start off by saying what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you're inactive. You're not doing anything. Jacob is not inactive in his situation. Jesus is not inactive in his ministry. Even during his trial, when Jesus is silent, we should never confuse that with inactivity. For us as Christians, there is always a very active role, even if nothing else, you have an active responsibility to be drawing closer in your relationship with God. And committing yourself, your cares, your work, your hopes to God. That is an active process. And as is true of all aspects of the Christian faith, leaning into God's grace in the midst of injustice is really a matter of the heart. I mean, that's always the fundamental question, isn't it? Where is your heart? Where is your heart? in everything that's happening. And by the way, because it is a matter of the heart, it's not like this is a decision you can make one time and then forget it. It's a battle. When you are in in injustice, living with injustice, it, it is an ongoing battle of the question, whom do you believe is responsible for justice? Is it you? Or is it God? And that's the fundamental question. Whom do you believe ultimately is responsible for justice? Is it you or is it God? And hopefully you can see that by answering that question, you haven't suddenly answered all the other questions of, well, what actions should you take? Or what conversations should you have or not have? Now, you still need wisdom. You still need God's Spirit to, to walk through to make those kinds of decisions. But the way you answer that question, right, who is responsible for justice, will have huge implications for how. How do you go about those actions? How do you go about those conversations? What's your tone? What's your demeanor in those things? Who are you thinking is on the line, is on the hook to bring about good when it looks like nothing is going the way that it should? That is going to make a huge difference. And if you answer that question by saying, yes, I believe that God is ultimately the one responsible for justice, I want to offer you just one one final encouragement. This is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you, blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And that blessing there doesn't just have to do with with some time that you share the gospel with somebody else. That applies to any time that you are simply trying to be faithful to God and carrying out whatever is your responsibility, whatever is your obligation in a way that you believe is right before God and before other people. 
And God will see that faithfulness and he will bless it. And that that is his grace that we can lean into. Let's pray that in times of injustice, as we meet that, we be able to lean into God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, at the end of the day, and even the beginning of the day, and certainly at the final accounting, we are not the ones that have to carry justice. We don't have to have that burden. We don't have to have that weight, but it's you. And you are a God that, although you are just, in Jesus, you give us what we don't deserve. Help us to be reminded of that, that that we are recipients of grace and mercy and not justice in Jesus. We get the justice that Jesus has earned for us. So we thank you that for you are you are a God of mercy with that justice. You are just to us in Christ, in your mercy. Would you help us to reflect that? Help us to commit ourselves to you, to continue committing ourselves to the one who judges justly. In Jesus' name, amen.